Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we have Ray Douglas on the show, and we'll be discussing his book, Orderly and Humane, The Expulsion of the Germans After the Second World War. This is an absolutely terrific book on a neglected topic. As I told Ray in the pre-interview, I had heard of the expulsion. Of course, I knew that it had occurred. I did not know the magnitude of it. I did not know, well, we'll talk about this in the course of the interview, I did not know that it had been planned long before the war was won. That was truly surprising to me, um, and it was surprising to everyone, all my historian colleagues who I have told about this. Uh, this is, if there is news in history, this was news to me. Um, and it really cast the Allies in a different light, one that I didn't understand, especially for Americans who think of it as the good war. The good war involved a certain amount of I would call it ethnic cleansing. I, I'm, I don't know what else to call it. Sorry, Ray. Um, but we'll let you weigh in on that. Uh, maybe you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure, delighted and very good to be with you. Um, as you'll probably gather from the accent, I am Irish. I did my undergraduate work over there at Trinity College Dublin, where I was diverted by my tutors pretty firmly into the stream of history, then came over to the United States for grad work, um, obtained a master's at Ohio State in Columbus, and went on to Brown University for the PhD in Providence. Um, I came to Colgate University in upstate New York after that, um, have been here ever since, God help us, 16 years, (laughs) and uh, I'm currently chairman of the history department here. For your sins, you're chairman of the history department, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Another historian, only he can know. <laughs> Hard duty, I, as they say in the service. I spend all my day drowning my colleagues' kittens for them, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so uh, could you explain how you came to write this book? And I'm particularly interested in this question because I, I won't say this is a forbidden topic, but it's a very difficult topic. Uh, for almost everyone concerned? I think it is an extremely difficult and sensitive topic, and some of my German friends uh, in the profession have said to me that really only an outsider, a foreigner, would be uh, able to write a book like this, or at least able to get it into print. And certainly, almost every review in German that I have seen of the book, it came out first in German, subsequently in English, then French. Just about every review referred to my nationality, and this is clearly a big deal for them, the notion that somebody coming from a neutral country in the Second World War, uh, one of the five European countries that didn't participate in either side, would be able to address this topic with a reasonably dispassionate eye. Well, as to why I came to write this book, it's one of those things that I tried very hard not to write for a very long time. 
Uh, ever since I was doing my doctoral dissertation work uh, on an aspect of the UN's early history, I was aware that there was a brief vogue in the 1940s for moving populations around like pieces on a chessboard to sort out various nationality problems. So I had some notion of what happened in Central Europe to various nationalities and especially to the Germans, not a terribly advanced understanding. Um, and I was waiting effectively for somebody else to come along and write a book, a scholarly book, a relatively soundly research book that I could assign to my students to explain to them how Central Europe just underwent this tremendous demographic and uh, ethnic transformation in the few years after the Second World War. And nobody ever wrote the darn thing. Um, I was waiting for about 10 years. Finally, I was sitting in a restaurant, a Bangladeshi restaurant in London, just around the corner from the Victoria Station, which rejoiced in the name of Spicy World, <laughs> with the then president of Colgate University, Colgate's first woman president, Jane Pynchon, and complaining and kvetching and moaning about the lack of a book of this nature. That's something very uh, dangerous to do around uh, Professor Pynchon. Anybody who knows her will know that she is absolutely charming, but also absolutely relentless. <laughs> so she started to work upon me to do the thing myself, and I said, Jane, in God's holy name, no, it'll kill me. It'll destroy 10 years of my life, mm -hmm. and you've no idea what a hot-button topic this is. But um, once Professor Pynchon, or President Pynchon, as she then was, um, decides that you're going to do something, the fact of the matter is you're going to do it. So... <laughs> I did spend the next 10 years working on this. Um, it did consume my life. It turned out to be just a massive, branching, ramifying uh, study. I felt a bit at times like the first guy to write the history of the Great War or to, to attempt to do so anyway. And I'm under no illusions that I have done anything other than scratch the surface of this topic. Mm -hmm. I have a decade's worth of work behind me in various archives. Uh, all across Europe and North America, and I dare say in that time I have looked at perhaps 1% of the directly relevant archival documents that I know to exist, and God alone knows what I don't know to exist, but it's just a massive, massive topic. The harvest is plentiful, the labor is extremely few. There's enough scope here for a hundred doctoral dissertations. Mm -hmm. No, I imagine that's true. Occasionally when I talk to historians of the Eastern Front in World War II, they will mention that there are entire battles that you've never heard of that um, have never been written about. Very large battles by American standards. You know, it's very, very large. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the enormity of the event, because I think most people don't know. Uh, let me begin by asking this. Uh, where were the Germans? There's this distinction between um, the, the Reich Germans and the, the Volkdeutsche, that is the ethnic Germans. Um, and what does that distinction mean? Well, the question of who is a German is one of these vexed issues. Um, 
Basically, in Germany proper, let us say Germany up to its pre-Second World War frontiers, or at any rate, its 1937 frontiers before Hitler started expanding in all directions, you have obviously the Germans living in the Old Reich. But over these centuries, all manner of German-speaking colonies or little islands of German settlement, some of them not so small, were seeded throughout Central Europe. And the most surprising places, there were about 600,000 um, German speakers, for example, living in Yugoslavia, or the country that became Yugoslavia in 1918, most of them in what's nowadays Serbia. You had about 3 million, uh, or rather more than 3 million German speakers living in the state of Czechoslovakia that was created in 1918. I mean, strictly speaking, Czechoslovakia should have been called Czecho-Germano-Slovakia mm -hmm. because the Germans were the second largest ethnicity in that country. It was Czechs first, Germans second, Slovaks third. Uh, in Poland, you had the guts of a million German speakers who were left on the wrong side of the border when that was drawn uh, after the Treaty of Versailles. There were Germans in Romania, close to half a million of them. There's even a pretty large German colony, the so-called Volga Germans, mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union, way over uh, inside European Russia, who had been there for nearly 300 years. Some of these German settlements were up to a thousand years old. And that's not surprising in the context of Central Europe. Until the Second World War, this was the most ethnically heterogeneous part of the European continent. Everybody was mixed up with everybody. Everybody was intermarrying with everybody. Three or four native languages, quote-unquote, might be spoken around the, the kitchen table at home. You had a whole bunch of people who uh, the so-called amphibians who didn't really know what their primary nationality was and didn't particularly care either. Mm -hmm. And how assimilated, I, this is sort of a silly question because I know the answer is that they were to various degrees assimilated. How assimilated were these Germans in these various places? Well, you've, you've, you've given the answer yourself. I answered you the question it, for you, yes. <laughs> absolutely. It, it varies hugely. Sometimes you have... Um, People who are in mixed marriages and um, they they go back and forth um, with with two or three different languages. Um, you know, they might be German for the purpose of uh, going to clubs or supporting a sports team, but they might be Czech when it comes to filling out their tax returns, or they might be you know any number of other things. Lots of them definitely looked towards the ethnic homeland. That is to say, they consider themselves more German than anything else. Uh, a lot of them, like most of the Sudeten Germans in, the, uh, in Czechoslovakia, probably regarded themselves as more Austrian than German, because up until 1918, they would have been citizens were subjects of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm. So it's really impossible to generalize. They're just all over the farm in terms of their primary identification, if indeed they had a primary identification at all. Mm -hmm. I see. So one of Hitler's projects was to gather all these people, either by taking the countries in which they lived or bringing them to places where he thought they should be put. Um, and this is an important moment in the book because 
they did a kind of census of them. They made a sort of list. Can you talk a little bit about that? Indeed. I mean, the pretext for starting the Second World War was Hitler's complaint that there were these German speakers stranded outside the borders of the Reich, uh, specifically in September 1939 in Poland, in the Polish Corridor and uh, Danzig, and he wanted the boundaries of Germany to expand to take in these lost ethnic brothers and sisters. In his case, that was simply pretextual. He had much larger ambitions with uh, starting the war. But once the war was underway, obviously the borders did expand to include these people. And the Germans then had the tricky task of deciding who was a German and who wasn't. Uh, the Nazis took over a large chunk of pre-war Poland and incorporated that territory into the Reich. They called them the incorporated Eastern Territories. And obviously they only wanted um, racially compatible peoples living there. If you were Jewish, obviously you were racially incompatible. You had to leave. You'd be deported from these uh, conquered territories. But what about everybody who wasn't um, Jewish? As I say, the kind of people who might speak German in the marketplace, but might speak Polish around the kitchen table or vice versa. So in these incorporated territories, there were a couple of ways in which you could go about deciding who is a German and would be allowed to stay and who wasn't and would be allowed to leave. If you went by the book, you could send in the ethnic investigators, uh, the uh, race measurement guys from the SS with their measuring tapes who would look at your skull and the shape of your nose and all manner of really pseudo-scientific measurements and give you an answer there. Mostly that didn't happen because it took way too long and there wasn't the manpower to inquire. So typically what the Germans tended to do was go by people's self-definition. You could... Um, sign up in a thing called the Deutsches Volksliste, the German ethnic list. You could sign up and declare yourself to be one of four categories of German. Um, and largely because it was impossible to go back into people's ethnic pedigree two or three hundred years in parts of the world where you know birth certificates were almost unknown in many cases, um, if you just signed up and said, yeah, okay, I'm a German, uh, as a means of avoiding deportation, although you may have been as Polish as the Kielbasa, <laughs> then you're quite likely to be signed up and left there. You were recognized as a Volksdeutsche, as an ethnic German, which is all fine, well, and good. And a lot of the Polish clergy urged their um, uh, parishioners to do this to avoid uh, being thrown out of their homes. But then, of course, when the war is over and the Poles have retaken over this area, then the question, exactly the same question, reasserts itself. Uh, if you've signed this German ethnic census, even just to escape the attentions of the Nazis, have you declared yourself German and are you now unassimilable as a Pole? Mm -hmm. So one of the things you point out in the book that I thought was really fascinating, this is something I did know a little bit about, is that, that is um, during uh, the attempt to remake the ethnic character, 
of the uh, Eastern territories, as the Germans might have called them, uh, the Germans made a kind of mess of it. They found it was extraordinarily difficult to move large, large numbers of people, uh, at least successfully. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I think one thing that people often don't get about the Second World War is that it was more than anything else from the Nazis' point of view, an exercise in remaking the demographic map of Europe. And even the Holocaust, horrendous though it was, was perceived as only a step, an important step, but far from the final step in this process. The Germans aimed, we all know this, at the conquest of living space, Lebensraum in the east, and they were going to get rid of the racially unassimilable or inferior peoples, both Jews and Slavs, clear them out by one means or another, and plant Germans in their place. There was going to be a huge colonization effort that ultimately didn't just involve the six million Jews murdered in the Holocaust, it would involve up to 50 million, five zero million Slavs deported from Poland, from the Ukraine, from Belarus, European Russia, all shoved out into the far, far east um, to be used as slave labor simply to die and have this area recolonized by Germans. This was part of the building of the Thousand Year Reich. One of the reasons it would take a thousand years is that's how long it would take to breed enough Germans to colonize this entire area. So during the war, um, both the Holocaust and deportations of other Slavic peoples to, to make room for all this to happen, uh, this, was, this was proceeding apace. The Germans weren't waiting around until they had won the Second World War to start this process. They found, though, that it was an immensely difficult and complicated job. Firstly, as I say, they didn't have enough colonists. There just weren't enough warm bodies there. Germans weren't having enough babies to provide a surplus to go and live there. And moreover, hardly anybody in Germany wanted to go to these places. I mean, central Poland is a pretty bleak part of the world, uh, or it certainly was at the time. The, the steps roll on and on, so to speak. It's not very highly developed. There aren't good communications. So by and large, people just didn't want to, to live there. So even while they tried to plant uh, Germans in those conquered territories, uh, people were legging it and bailing out as fast as they could. And by and large, the German colonization effort during the war was a pretty miserable failure. Mm -hmm. And then we come to the Allied effort itself. And with full knowledge, the Germans had attempted to do this and uh, were causing incredible human suffering as a result of it. The Allies... Um, quite early in the war, started to discuss uh, very serious-mindedly, I think, moving Germans out of the territories which they were going to conquer and moving them back into a smaller Germany. And this was the part of the book that really surprised me because it's this sort of talk started even before the war, even before they knew the war they were going to win the war. Could you, could you talk a little bit about oh, this policy planning? Yes, absolutely. Um, as I say. A lot of people were watching quite closely what Hitler was doing, and once a war begins, um, 
the kind of constraints or restraints that exist previously, especially in terms of humanitarian values and so forth, tend to go by the, war, the, the board. And a lot of uh, allied policymakers, politicians and so forth, were watching with keen interest what Hitler was attempting to do and thinking, um, well, we can take a leaf out of that book. In the first place, the thinking was, perhaps we don't want to leave these German ethnic islands or enclaves outside of whatever post-war Germany uh, we'll create. They're going to be a standing temptation there. Uh, Hitler used them to try and expand his borders. If they weren't there anymore, then there wouldn't be a pretext of this kind. Secondly, moving the borders around um, seemed a better way of sorting out Europe's minority problems, which had been huge difficulty in the interwar period, than what was done in the First World War. After the Treaty of Versailles, or in the Treaty of Versailles and the other um, post-Great War treaties, the thinking had been national self-determination. Let's move the boundaries around to the frontiers between countries as far as possible to take account of the distribution of peoples. Let's have national self-determination. That really didn't work in Central Europe. People were too mixed up, too interspersed, too intermarried, um, even defining who people were, far less drawing cohesive borders for them, just really wasn't a starter. So most of the new states created after 1918 were ethnic mishmashes like Czechoslovakia, like Poland, like Yugoslavia. So the thinking was in 1940 and 1941 and 42. well, that didn't work so terribly well. Maybe what we should do is keep the frontiers where they are, but move the peoples and have a new order in Europe in which every state will have just one nation living in it. So no nationalities problems, minorities problems, uh, religious or racial problems. We'll, uh, we'll simply move them around. And if the Germans get it in the neck, well, they can't exactly complain about that, can they? After all, they started it. This was very much the thinking. Mm-hmm. And there was, was, there, was now, there, I was going to say, was there broad consensus yeah. on this? Um, well, I suppose on the part of those who were making the decisions, uh, probably yes. On the part of public opinion, less so as time went on, but, um, but I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. Okay, sorry, I interrupted you. The tricky, no, no, not at all. The tricky bit was the, the numbers involved, because the numbers just got completely out of hand. Okay, so we're going to um, get rid of the German minority in Poland, 800,000. Well, it's a large number, but it's fairly doable. Uh, the 600,000 in Yugoslavia? Well, you know, whatever. Um, the 3.1 million in Czechoslovakia? Okay, we swallow hard, <laughs> crunching our numbers, trying to figure out how many trainloads full of people that is. But what really puts the cat among the pigeons is when the Allies decide to move the borders of Poland after the war. Now, 
As you probably know, when the war started in September 1939, Hitler and Stalin were buddies in the uh, Nazi-Soviet pact. Two weeks after Hitler invades Poland from the west, the Soviets invade from the east. Ironically, Stalin offers exactly the same pretext for invading Poland. We have to look after our ethnic minorities who are being treated horribly by the Poles. But one way or the other, the country is partitioned between the Soviets and the Germans. Now, Stalin's position is pretty straightforward, and he says to his tame communist Poles after the war, you know that half of your country are ripped off in 1939? Well, sorry, you're not getting it back. Uh, it's mine, and I'm keeping it. And indeed, to this very day, those territories remain western Ukraine, western Belarus. But don't worry, said Stalin to the Poles, um, you won't lose by it because I'll give you an equivalent chunk of what had been Germany up to this point on your western border. Effectively, what Stalin is proposing to do is lift up the pre-war state of Poland and move the whole shebang bodily about 150 miles to the west. And what that means is the western border of Poland is going to move that distance inside what had been, up until this point, just totally Germany. It's not a question of ethnic Germans, it's a question of Germans proper. Now, there's somewhere between 7 and 8 million Germans living in that territory that's going to go to Poland. The Poles say <laughs> there's no way they can stay there. Um, they're going to be more than a quarter, getting on for a third of the population of post-war Poland if they do stay there. Um, you know, getting on for a third of our country will be German-speaking. We can't have that. So all of those people are going to have to be moved as well. So now... We've already talked about the other fairly large numbers. We're tossing in anywhere up to another 8 million there. We're starting to get into between 12 and 14 million people that need to be moved forcibly, what we nowadays call ethnic cleansing, at the end of the war by Allied command. And that's not just the largest ethnic cleansing operation in human history, larger even than anything the Germans had attempted. It's very likely the largest single movement of population in human history. The New York Times was reporting on this at the time and editorialized in a very worried way that what the Allies were proposing to do was move in a year or so a greater number of people than all the immigrants who came to the United States in the first half of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. well, you know, it's just so astounding that they would think they could do this in an orderly and humane way to mention the topic of or the, the, the title of your book. It, it just... It, it, well, truthfully, they didn't. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, Go ahead. They conducted a bunch um, of very detailed studies, and the British especially looked into this in very great, great detail, got a lot of um, experts in uh, doing this kind of thing, although there really weren't too many good historical precedents, and had them crunch the numbers and figure out how can this be done in a reasonable way. And the expert opinion was unanimous. It simply can't be. If you try this, there is going to be, as sure as eggs as eggs, a humanitarian catastrophe. There's just no other way of doing it. 
Um, it will either take decades if you try and do it in a humane fashion, and the experts say that simply won't work because it will cost too much, people's memory of the war will fade, um, international organizations will start raising protests, the Red Cross will kick up stink. It simply can't be done if you're going to spin it out. It will have to be done in a tearing hurry. You'll have to seize the moment. And if you do that, then there are going to be dire humanitarian consequences. There's going to be dire economic consequences. Um, uh, A foreign office committee looking at this warned you might actually collapse the European economy. There is a real danger that that will happen. Mm-hmm. And that um, opinion was considered and read by the powers that be, very senior people, including Clement Athley, who becomes British Prime Minister after the war. And the conclusion is, well, we'll have to have a humanitarian catastrophe then, because we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we shouldn't strain ourselves too hard to try and prevent suffering, to try to uh, ease the burden. Because one thing that needs to happen at the end of this war that didn't happen at the end of the First World War is the Germans, ordinary Germans, ordinary men, women, and yes, children, will need to get it through their heads that there, there are really unpleasant personal consequences to losing a war. So, to a great degree, the suffering that was involved in this operation was, I won't say welcomed, but certainly regarded with equanimity as a salutary form of re-education of the German masses. Mm. That's fascinating and kind of frightening. So, as the uh, Soviets and the Americans and the British and the French uh, start to defeat Germany uh, in spring, they start to actually enter Germany and the occupied territories in the um, fall of 44 and the sp- or the winter of 44 and the spring of 45. Some of these areas are liberated and we, uh, we, we start the period, which is sometimes called the wild expulsions. Um, and one of the things you point out in the book is that they aren't exactly wild. And why are they called the wild expulsions? Who calls them that? Well, this was a term that originated in Czechoslovakia. The Czechs, and mostly the Czechs to a degree, the Slovaks, were perhaps the most enthusiastic about mass expulsions of Germans. They had always been upset about the presence of such a large German minority in their country. They wanted to complete their national revolution. Um, And their original idea... Uh, after VE Day was, well, we simply take a leaf out of the German book. How do we get these people to leave uh, and leave in a hurry? Uh, the Czechs in particular were very keen on creating facts on the ground before the big three powers might change their mind uh, as to what was going on. Well, the Germans seemed to make terror work well for them. Um, the expelling countries at this point, principally Czechoslovakia and Poland, decided, let's try the same thing. So there were a variety of methods. Um, In some cases, people were simply rounded up and uh, shot en masse. And some of these massacres were very large indeed in the the hundreds. some perhaps in Poland larger yet, uh, definitely in Yugoslavia larger yet, 
uh, simply troops going around surrounding an area or a village and shooting people, burying them in mass graves. It was a way of encouraging others to head for the frontiers. Sometimes a village would be surrounded by troops and militia. Everybody rounded up and just marched at uh, bayonet point to the frontier. And some of these immensely long treks took days or weeks and left a phenomenal body count behind them. I don't necessarily want to call them death marches as such, but the fact of the matter is the body count was terribly high. In many cases, people were rounded up into camps um, to facilitate their later deportation and to enable their property to be seized and redistributed. And one of the things that always makes people's jaw drop when I tell them about this episode in history is that practically every concentration camp that you have heard of at the end of the Second World War, your Auschwitzes, your Theresienstadt, your Maidanics, and hundreds of others, never went out of business in 1945 or indeed for years afterwards. As a case in point, the Soviet army liberated um, Auschwitz in Poland in um, uh, early January 1945, and the surviving prisoners who were in absolutely terrible uh, condition uh, were, uh, were let free. Within a couple of weeks, Auschwitz was back in the detention business, except instead of holding Hitler's enemies, it now held ethnic Germans, predominantly women and children. And there was just what I call a massive archipelago of camps, official and unofficial, running right the length of Central Europe from the Baltic all the way down to the Adriatic, many of which remained open for years after the war, and some of which, tragically, um, operated regimes that were chillingly similar to the ones that the uh, Germans had had in place. Not with gas chambers. These weren't extermination camps. They weren't death camps. But um, conditions for prisoners, predominantly women, children, and the, el and the elderly, were extremely rigorous, and the death rates, again, extremely high. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you point out in the book as, uh, is that most, well, I don't know, you can, you can characterize the percentage that, that, that I think many of the people who were the Germans who were being expelled were, in fact, uh, women, children, and old folks. No, that's absolutely true, and that is completely characteristic of ethnic cleansing operations anywhere in the world. This is the population that is affected. Um, the adult males, they're the ones who can get out of the way easily, and in this specific instance, uh, very often they would have been conscripted into the German armed forces, they would have been taken away for labor in the uh, war economy or whatever. The people who are left, the people who wind up in the crosshairs, are the static parts of the population rather than the mobile ones, the people who have no choice but to stay home, and those are the women, the kids, and the, the elderly. So in terms of who is affected by this massive uh, deportation program, getting on for nine-tenths 
were in those three categories, women, children under the age of 16, elderly over the age of 60. Uh, somewhere in the ballpark of between 8 to 10% were adult males. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us how, when, and why the period of wild expulsions ends and what follows it. Well, the expelling countries discovered the hard way, uh, as indeed Hitler said, that uh, terror is not in fact a particularly effective means of getting large numbers of people to go to the border. Um, And it all takes too long. And it causes huge difficulties for the receiving powers, in this case, the four allied powers in Germany um, that were uh, occupying the country and um, every day having the population of a small to medium-sized town descend upon them. They complained bitterly about these wild expulsions, not because they disapproved of the project of moving Germans, they were fully on board with that, but the Germans were just arriving in a most appalling state. They were either dropping dead on the spot or having to be sent to hospital in a country where hospitals didn't really exist, and so on and so forth. So the great powers leaned on the expelling countries to um, uh, turn this into a more structured operation. And by the spring of 1946, uh, the period of the so-called wild expulsions was wound down and the quote-unquote organized expulsions was put in place. So you'd have networks of assembly camps set up where you could herd in the uh, the deportees and keep them there uh, under wraps, so to speak, until you were ready to move them. Then you march them down to uh, a railhead, you load them into cattle cars, you chug them off towards Germany, you evict them there, and basically the Germans themselves can figure out what to do with them from then on. So from 46, basically until the end of 47, beginning of 48, although there were after shocks, if you like, later expulsions all the way up to 1950, you have uh, attempts at any rate to do it in a more structured way. I'm not really sure that from the point of view of the expellees, the organized expulsions were to be preferred to the disorganized or the wild ones, because very often what this involved was cramming as many human bodies as physically could be shoved into cattle cars, uh, locking the doors and having the train shuttle off in the general direction of Germany, something that given the chaos of communications could take quite literally weeks Uh, often without food, often without water, often without heating, and then opening up at the far end and letting whoever was still capable of staggering off, stagger off and um, burying the remainder. Mm -hmm. And did the Allies handle these things differently in their different zones? I think you mentioned that they did in the book. Yeah, um, I suppose probably the equation of whether you as an individual expellee would survive the process um, depended more on where you were being expelled from rather than where you were going to. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that made for the death rate spiking like nobody's business was how long you spent in one of these camps before you left. 
If it was a very short period, let's say a few days or even a few weeks, then your chances of survival were extremely high. If you were kept in one of these camps for a year or more than a year, then your your chances went down pretty dreadfully. In Yugoslavia, as a case in point, the Allies never approved expulsions from Yugoslavia, but they took place anyway. Um, somewhere around one in three of those who went into the camps didn't come out again alive. Um, if you were expelled from Czechoslovakia, that was probably a better place to be expelled from because the train journey is pretty short. Uh, you're not going to be locked in a cattle car for longer than two or three days. If you're being expelled from Poland, especially in the winter, you could be locked in for a couple of weeks and your, your chances there are fairly poor. Mm-hmm. Was there any attempt on the part of the Allies to monitor these transports to make sure that they reached a certain uh, standard of, um, I guess, humaneness or anything like that? And then my, a follow-on question would be, what happened to them once they were dumped over the border in the Allied zones? Right. Well, to answer the first question, um, relatively little. There were protocols laid down for the expelling countries to follow. You have to uh, provide uh, a nominal list, a a role of everybody you're throwing out. You have to have some kind of medical inspection to make sure that you're not uh, deporting diseased people and sending a public health problem across the border. You have to provide so many rations for people on the train so that they don't arrive starved to death or whatever. And by and large, those protocols were uh, not followed. They weren't even monitored. Um, As I say, this is something that could not be done at all if it weren't done quickly. And if it's done quickly, it just cannot be done humanely. Mm -hmm. And the Western allies, the British and Americans, recognized this. And they basically said, well, look, these countries are not going to comply by these requirements. In the interests of humanity, it's better that we encourage them to throw out their minorities as fast as possible under whatever conditions, because if we don't facilitate this process, then all of these women and children are going to die anyway. They'll die before they can be expelled. So let's just turn a blind eye, let them shove as many warm bodies as they can onto the cattle cars, and we'll sort it out at the other end. Mm-hmm. The only time when that uh, model wasn't followed was when the Western Allies and the Americans in particular decided, you know what, we've had it with this. Um, we're up to our ears in impoverished, diseased Germans. It's costing our taxpayers an absolute bundle. Um, it's time to ring down the curtain on this. Mm-hmm. So with the Hungarian expulsions that were going to the American zone, uh, occupied zone of Germany, eventually the Americans said to the Hungarians, you know what, we're going to make you guys live up to your commitments. And when that happened, expulsion stopped. Effectively, the Hungarian end of the operation was closed. Mm-hmm. Now, as regards what happens them once they arrive, The Allies laid down as a basic principle from the very beginning, these people are not to be eligible for any international assistance. Why, you may ask? Yes. Well, (laughs) the answer is we are in the process of creating the single largest refugee problem in Europe. There's going to be more of these German expellees than any other kind of displaced person or Jewish refugee or whatever. So if we provide any aid, however minimal, 
the lion's share of that aid will wind up going to Germans, will go, will go to ex-enemies. Now, in the immediate post-war era, when antagonisms and antipathies are just so intense, that's politically completely impossible. So the argument is, we're not even going to try. The German expellees will be dumped in Germany. Let the local Germans solve that problem. The, um, uh, the Soviets, the British, the French, the United States all adopted the same slogan, make the Germans do it. Mm-hmm. And did the Germans do it? I mean, did they do it successfully? Did they keep people from starving? And They did it about as well, I suppose, as in the circumstances could be done, which meant... Not terribly well, but Lord, they gave it the old college try. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I me, mean, you had a situation. Go ahead. I was going to say, let me let me ask a question um, because we're kind of running out of time, and I have a lot sure. of questions. Uh, let me ask a question about resistance and opposition of various sorts. Uh, one of the things you point out in the book, well, I'll let you say it. How did the Germans respond to being expelled? This is sort of surprising. It truly is with astonishing passivity. Everybody thought that there would be um, stay-back units after Germany was defeated, that there'd be a guerrilla warfare effort, the so-called werewolves running around sniping at the Allies and so on and so forth. It just didn't happen. It didn't happen anywhere. And a lot of records (laughs) testify to this uncanny passivity on the part of the Germans. It's very difficult to explain why there was so little resistance. I mean, basically none at all. And the only speculation that I can come up with is that after 12 years of totalitarian rule, the Germans' ability to organize and to um, to resist or to make nuisance of themselves, that had basically been sort of slapped out of them, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, t- turn to the um, other side, that is, on, on, on the side of the expellers. Uh, what did the great and good, and I, I suppose journalists and um, people that were interested in human rights, what did they say about these expulsions? Well, it's certainly not the case that, you know, it's just sort of bedwetting and neuretic uh, historians coming along 70 years later mm-hmm. and saying, oh, isn't this awful? Not the case at all. There were um, some very uh, outspoken people uh, looking at this, um, in many cases, uh, people who had been working in Nazi concentration camps, liberated concentration camps like Belsen. Uh, so they certainly weren't philo-Germanic, um, who looked at what was happening and certainly the dreadful state in which expellees were arriving in Germany and saying, this isn't what we fought the war for. This isn't why I signed up. Um, we fought the war not to continue hostilities against women and children. We didn't uh, uh, bargain for this. So you had people like George Orwell, as a case in point, uh, writing very publicly um, and very explicitly, Orwell describing this operation as what he called a quote-unquote enormous crime. Uh, he reassured himself that the Allies surely wouldn't actually carry this progress, this this process uh, uh, through. He thought it was just so unhinged that surely, uh, once they realized how immense and inhumane it was, they'd uh, they'd knock it off. He would be disappointed. Mm-hmm. Bertrand Russell, uh, the philosopher, 
wrote to the Times to point out that at the very moment that the Allies were carrying out these mass deportations, they were simultaneously trying the surviving leaders of Nazi Germany for carrying out mass deportations of civilians during the war, something that at Nuremberg was described as a crime against humanity. And while I'm on the subject of the law, at this time, the Genocide Convention was being drawn up at the United Nations. The original draft included a prohibition against mass deportations until the, UN de the U.S. delegate at the U.N. pointed out that if it went through, it would criminalize the, ex the expulsions that were currently being carried out by members of the United Nations, including the U.N. So by a majority vote, that provision was removed from the eventual Genocide Convention. Mm -hmm. So, as I say, we are uh, running out of time, but there are a couple more questions by way of conclusion I want to ask. First of all, just in terms of the demographics, how many Germans were moved? Do we know um, how many anywhere, Yeah, anywhere between 12 and 14 million either were physically removed by the expelling countries and the Allies or if they had fled the Red Army um, sweeping across um, Eastern Europe in the late part of 44, the early part of 45, were prevented permanently from returning to their homes. Mm -hmm. So as I say, very possibly the largest single movement of population in human history, even more than the uh, displacements caused by the partition of India in 1947. Mm -hmm. And again, a difficult figure to reckon. How many of them died as a result of the expulsions uh, of unnatural, sort of uh, unnatural causes, let's put it that way. Right. Well, the numbers are all over the farm here, mainly because we have difficulty in agreeing what's an expulsion-related death. If you die in the camps, yes. If you die of a massacre, yes. If you die of um, uh, starvation or exposure or other maltreatment while you're in transit, then yes. But let's say you're deposited in Germany, there's nowhere for you to live, you're sleeping in ditches, you're sleeping in fields, you don't have food, you're sick, you die of hypothermia. Is that an expulsion-related death? There, there, there are disputes. But the lowest credible uh, estimate that gets um, bandied about, the, the low end of the spectrum, is about 500,000 dead. Uh, at the upper end, maybe a million and a half. And where you fall between those two ends is largely a question of definition. But bearing in mind that those who died were like the <laughs> expellee population in general, women, children, the elderly, this is certainly one of the most significant mass abuses of human rights in modern times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I spent a summer in Germany, I guess this is years ago now, and I stayed with a family, lived in um, a, a little village town south of Koblenz, it was very beautiful, and uh, my guest family, my host family, I should say, uh, they had pictures of East Prussia all over the place, and I asked them about this, and they said they were East Prussian. Um, and I wondered about, do Germans today retain a kind of identity as expellees? Is it, is it do they... Uh, do they get together to talk about life in East Prussia or wherever they came from? Is there any? Is there oh, any? very. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, very much so. And there are organizations called Landsmannschaften, which are sort of homeland societies 
of expellees and descendants of expellees. Nowadays, about one German in four is either a surviving expellee or their immediate descendants. Um, and yes, although they have accommodated themselves to the fact that they've lost their homelands, they're never going back. Uh, these areas are now Poland or the Czech Republic and they will remain that way forever. Um, there, there was a myth in Germany that the process of assimilation was fairly easy, that all these newcomers, some of whom hardly spoke German at all or even didn't speak German, were just um, taken in and welcomed and um, assimilated and helped. By and large, that really isn't the case. And there's a lot of scholarship appearing now uh, dealing with just the antipathy that there was on the part of the settled population to all these strangers in their midst who were stigmatized as gypsies and savages and Polacks and Russians or whatever it might be. Um, of course, the the fact that these people still exist and still have this consciousness still causes a great deal of angst in Poland and the Czech Republic. These countries and their peoples and especially their governments fear that the Germans are going to try and bring legal claims against them for compensation or try and get their nationality back or whatever it might be. And this is probably the leading course, cause of um, uh, tension between Germany and her immediate neighbors to the south and east, even to the present day. Mm -hmm. One of the, I thought one of the most uh, in, insightful thing that was said, it was either said by Orwell or by the British Commission that first studied the possibility of the expulsions, is that one of the reasons that it, uh, it couldn't really work in the long term is that that's not the way human demographics work, that people just wander around unless you close the borders completely, and that's very hard to do. Uh, it, it seems to me that's correct, and I'm wondering about Germans who are uh, returning. I don't know if returning is the right word, but uh, are there Germans who live in Poland and Czechoslovakia or Slovakia and, and Serbia? I mean, are they, are they going back in any way? Uh, a lot of them go back as tourists, and there are <laughs> travel agencies in Germany that specialize in arranging a trip for you back to wherever you were kicked out of mm -hmm. in '46 or whatever, and they'll even um, arrange a meeting with whoever's living in your house wow. now so that you can uh, have tea with them and, you know, see what the, um, what the old place was like. And a lot of people who have gone on these trips have, um, you know, found them quite cathartic and and, uh, enables them to get closure. Sometimes, you know, people become pen pals with the with the family that's now living uh, where they are. Um, I think it's quite surprising just uh, how well it turned out against all the odds yeah. in the German case specifically. Because if you think about it, if you want a recipe for a third world war. Driving out millions and millions of people, <laughs> dumping them in a country that has no housing for them, nowhere for them to live, no jobs for them, um, stigmatizing them and uh, saying, you know, basically, get on with your life. If you wanted a situation to turn things absolutely upside down, you couldn't have done better than what the Allies did in 45, 46, 47, and the, the blood chills at the sheer recklessness of this project. Mm -hmm. Against the odds, it came good, and the reason it came good was, of course, the German economic miracle. Mm -hmm. The economy took off like a rocket. All these expellees 
rapidly found jobs. In fact, there was a huge labor shortage in post-war Germany, and it all came out right. Mm -hmm. But the terrible thing about economic miracles is, as their name implies, you can't depend on one coming down the pike just when you need one. (laughs) Usually, this is not what happens when you engage in mass expulsions. Usually, if people in uh, refugee camps for decades afterwards, usually they're impoverished, usually they're extremely angry. And, you know, you just have to look at the Middle East to see how that story normally ends. Yeah, that's right. Let me ask this, and then I'll ask our traditional final question. How was the book received in Germany? Astonishingly well across the political spectrum. Um, I thought the response would be more polarized than it was. Uh, It's been a very hot button topic, uh, and uh, politically people have... um, not wanted to go near that third rail, so to speak. One of the reasons that a lot of these questions was left for a rather unwashed Irishman to come along and write about. (laughs) But um, I was really gratified to see that um, uh, the reviewers, and I've probably seen 60 or 70 reviews now since it came out, yeah. Uh, well, it became a bestseller very That's quickly. It, really it's, it's into its third edition now oh. after less than a year in print. Mm-hmm. But um, by and large, people understood what the book was about, that it wasn't intended to be a vindication of the Germans. It wasn't intended to be any kind of relativization of the appalling crimes of the Nazis, which stand absolutely unique in the annals of villainy. It was intended to be a sober, scholarly reconstruction of what actually happened. And I'm delighted to say that um, both of the scholarly and popular reaction uh, has has, um, recognized that for what it was. Well, that's terrific. Congratulations. I I should also... Uh, say that you, I believe you are absolutely right that this is a book that launched a thousand dissertations. There are some striking lines in it that, you know, just beg to be followed up. I remember one in particular. To, to tell me if I'm wrong, but in, in a single sentence in the book, you say the Soviet authorities took a thousand German boys and nothing further was heard from them. Just like that. Just like that. <laughs> yeah. There are all these. There are all these human tragedies. You you follow these stories of desperate families and desperate circumstances. Um, very often, sadly, children, yeah. and the file just ends, and yeah. you have no idea how it came out. Well, I hope that uh, historians out there, or would-be historians, uh, read this book and uh, think about all of the mm, topics which you have uncovered and opened for further research. So, anyway, Ray, thank you much for so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. It's a great book. Let me rush to our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? What is your next project? Well, the more I worked on this project, the more it became clear to me that 1945 wasn't the watershed in European history that we once thought it was, that um, the after effects of the Second World War rumble on to our own times, and that nearly 70 years later, so many unanswered questions and so many unresolved conflicts still remain, many of which we don't even recognize or pay any attention to. So my next big book, if you like, is a study of some of these questions that 
come out of the Second World War that 70 years later we still haven't got a handle on or got our heads around. So the working title for this study is Unfinished Business. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope that we are able to talk to you uh, before 10 years is up. <laughs> All right. We've been talking with Ray Douglas about his book, Orderly and Humane, The Expulsion of the Germans After the Second World War. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Thanks for listening in and have a great week. Thank you.